this whole issue of the carbon tax is a clear indication that that the government itself in Ottawa doesn't really understand uh, agriculture and will basically use its urban roots mentality and will impose that mentality onto rural Canada as if everyone has to pay a carbon tax, as if farmers actually have a choice uh, with some of the practice uh, practices happening on farms. Um, it's, it's a bit insulting, to be honest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 5 of Fireside Chats with Aaron. I'm your host, Aaron Gowerluck. As Executive Director of the Grain Growers of Canada, I started this podcast to serve as a forum for real conversations with industry influencers and policymakers. Today's conversation is about the very real impact that COVID-19 is having on our sector and how the pandemic will shape government policy and programming into the future. And who better to have on today's show to cover this topic than Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Known as the food professor, Dr. Charlebois is Dean of the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University in Halifax and a professor in food distribution policy in the Faculty of Agriculture. His current research interest lies in the broad area of food distribution, security, and safety. Sylvain, thank you for stopping by for a fireside chat. My pleasure, Eric. You said recently that Ottawa should be lauded for helping many desperate sectors of our economy. But given how urban-centric the government currently is in Ottawa, agriculture has been somewhat forgotten. Farmers need help, you said, and they need it fast, or else Canada could lose up to 15% of its farms by the end of this year. How did you arrive at 15%? And of that amount, are there any commodities for specific sectors that you think are particularly vulnerable? Well, so obviously, uh, cy- uh, sectors that, are, that are, are severely affected by cycles typically are affected by, by economic downturns. Uh, I remember during my days in Saskatchewan, uh, I actually went through BSC myself and did some studies on BSC. COVID reminded me uh, of that a little bit. And uh, you may recall, Aaron, that we did lose quite a few uh, ranchers as a result of BSC. The number is, uh, I would say, uh, more symbolic than anything. We, we do lose farms every year. I, I think everyone knows that. But uh, it's not 15%. Uh, I actually do believe that a lot of a lot of uh, farmers will uh, feel um, financial pressures, real financial pressures, as a result of some of the issues that we've seen in processing, particularly. So livestock, to me, would be a definite uh, sector that will be severely affected, whether it's with uh, with beef, cattle, hogs. Um, obviously, with supply management, uh, our feather friends won't feel the same burden, uh, but still, uh, we we do we do we may actually see quite a few um, uh, livestock producers being affected by COVID. Unfortunately, on the grain side, uh, less so, to be honest. Or, of course, farm gate prices are going to be are being affected by COVID, obviously. Uh, but grain growers uh, are resilient and uh, it's funny because I saw some pictures of, uh, of uh, farmers uh, in the spring uh, just doing what they do best and uh, it just seems like there was no COVID going around and uh, it, it really felt good. I think a lot of people really enjoyed 
seeing that. It was a symbol of resilience, and it, it often comes from from the prairies, from from grain growers, and so it was nice to see. But I do I do believe that uh, that the bulk of farmers that are likely to disappear to exit would be in livestock. Thanks, Sylvain. Uh, and I and I echo your comments. I know for many of our members, it did feel very good to get out in the field again, especially after last year's harvest, which, harvest, which we often refer to as the harvest from hell. Many oh, yeah. of them had some additional cleanup to do from last year's harvest before they could get a new crop in the ground. But nonetheless, it's underway now and we're hoping for better results this year than, than last year. Mm-hmm. You wrote recently in the Toronto Sun that we're all in for a wild ride at the grocery store and suggested that we could expect to see about a 2 to 3% increase in the price of our groceries this year, which could ultimately represent a 30% increase in the amount of income that we spend on food. First off, where can we expect to see some of the biggest increases? So actually, pre-COVID, we were expecting the food inflation rate to reach 4%, uh, so, which is a little, a little bit high. Uh, however, what we didn't expect was to see a very low general inflation rate. Mm-hmm. It's, right now, it's at minus 0.2%. So the 4% may seem more like a 12% for consumers, and that's going to be a a real problem. Uh, This year is going to be uh, a year of a plus 4%, but in 2021, 2022, we may see the same thing. So we are... That's what I'm referring to uh, when, I th- when I talk about the wild ride is that we're likely going to see a few years uh, that are going to be challenging for consumers, especially consumers with, uh, with less means or consumers that have lost their jobs, unfortunately. And um, I do believe that this will get people to think differently about food. They will actually have to kind of revisit their the social contract that they have with food. We've been at home for two, three months now cooking, and now we're going to be uh, flirted. Uh, restaurateurs will be flirting with us to get us back out again, and I, I think a lot of people will need that and will want to actually interact with other people on a patio, having a nice meal, or just a coffee at a coffee shop. I, I think the economy needs it. I think we all need it. Uh, but I think over the last few months, we've reflected on uh, on our relationship with food. We've become our own processor. The more we process our own food at home in our kitchen, the more we save. And that has created a benchmark for most households in Canada. So once we leave the COVID era, once uh, COVID is behind us, we will be spending more money on food. How much more? Nobody knows for sure, but I can tell you that really COVID, because of the length of time it took, it really has created um, a new point, a mental point of reference for consumers and how they spend their money on food. And that's going to actually be quite transformational for the entire food system, including for grain growers. I mean, if you actually go up the food chain, at even at Farmgate, it's going to change. Uh, those decisions are going to be are, are are going to affect the entire food system. 
It's interesting you talk about return to restaurants. We were out, my family and I, cycling this weekend, and uh, we oh, were you? By a, a popular restaurant. We were we were maintaining our social distance from anyone outside of our family, but we were cycling, and and I couldn't believe the lineups at some of the restaurant patios. I think <laughs> that there is really, to your point, an itch for people to get out and and be out amongst people again and to be served food. As but where to- I live, restaurants <laughs> are opening today. Yes, that's so, right. Yeah. Yes, so, yeah. So I, I promised my time. wife to go out today. So we'll see what happens. Yes. Well, you could be faced with some lineups. I was surprised to see that. And I, I like this term that you've raised. And we're going to dig into that in a few minutes now when we talk a little bit about how what's happening now shapes the, the, the Canadian conversation around food. And I, and I want to revisit this term that you've used, social contract. I, I find that interesting, our social contract with food. But one more question on this point specifically, Sylvain, for those that don't understand how our complex food system works, can you explain why that even with the food prices increasing, this doesn't mean more money in the pockets of Canadian farmers? Oh my goodness, no. (laughs) No, that is probably one of the most significant myths out there. Uh, If your food costs more money at retail, Farmers could actually get less, and that's really the nature of, of food supply chains. Uh, we're seeing it in beef right now. Farm gate prices are actually much lower while food retail prices are going up across the country. Uh, to actually believe that there is a strong correlation between food price hikes at retail and farm gate prices is, uh, is just wrong it's not the case at all should should it be should there be a correlation i i don't know because the the economics of food supply chains are are pretty complicated um just a a piece of stats just to let you know how farmers have gained from seeing canadians stay at home uh on average if you buy a product at retail in a grocery store, the farmer will get anywhere between 20 to 22% of the money spent in a grocery store. That's on average. In a restaurant, it's four to 5%. Because of course you have to add extra costs like, uh, well, tips and the expensive bottle of wine and uh, it adds up. So on average, a farmer, when they see a person visit a grocery store more often, they actually eventually win. They get more out of that dollar spent in a grocery store than at a restaurant. So all the last three months, really farmers have won. But at the same time, will it last? That's, that's the question that we all have. So the more we go out, the less goes back to the farmer. So it's, it's our modern way of life. Uh, 30 years ago, we were spending way more of our budget on food a lot of it actually went back to the farmer, but today it's much more competitive. And, and frankly, market forces aren't necessarily affecting farm gate prices all that much. We both know that world prices are affecting, the entire globe is affecting how farmers are making more so than what's actually happening in Canadian grocery stores. That's an interesting point and one I didn't realize. And it, it must be, um, it must vary from sector to sector a little because I think, for example, about the, you know, we think about potatoes, for example, we probably consume more of those when we're going out to eat and we're having French fries. I, I know we saw a dip in the price of malt barley, for example, because we tend to drink more when the bars and restaurants are open, for example, than we may at home. So I'm sure it varies a little from commodity to commodity. Oh, absolutely. Interesting perspective on that, the one that I hadn't realized. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe on grains and oil seeds more, more specifically, you know, you're well aware, as we mentioned earlier on in our conversation around the harvest from hell, but you're very aware, I'm sure, of the challenges that many of our farmers were facing over the last couple of years. And we all, we've also seen the introduction of a, of a carbon tax and perhaps a reticence to enact regulatory reforms that would give farmers access to the plant technology and inputs needed to compete. So I want to ask you a couple of questions around the role of government. One more so around um, how the government promotes and regulates the sector at large. And then I want to come back and ask you a little bit about what it does to promote the regulatory system itself. So Mm -hmm. with respect to the role of government as it relates to the agriculture sector, what do you think the government's role ought to be in promoting and regulating the agriculture sector at large while encouraging innovation and advancement? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the first uh, task that the federal government would have would be to understand agriculture. The, this whole issue of the carbon tax is a clear indication that, that the government itself in Ottawa doesn't really understand uh, agriculture and will basically use its urban roots mentality and will impose that mentality onto rural Canada as if everyone has to pay a carbon tax, as if farmers actually have a choice uh, with some of the practice uh, practices happening on farms. Um, it's, it's a bit insulting to be honest. I think uh, I grew up on farms and I actually, you know, I, I have a pretty good idea of what happens. It wasn't a grain farm. It was a dairy farm, but still I, I have a pretty good sense of how isolating farming can be. And you, you do rely on a, a government to provide the proper support. Um, throughout COVID, it became even more obvious to me that the government really doesn't understand agriculture at all. And uh, they were Glimpse of hope, though. I mean, they, for for example, there were there was money put for uh, for processing. Although you could argue if it went to the right uh, people, the right companies, but there was this recognition that processing actually has to play a key role in our agri food economy, and, and that's that's kind of refreshing because we haven't seen that before. Um, and, and to me, that is the biggest problem. And if you don't invest in processing in Canada, the first people to pay for that are farmers themselves. They don't have a market. They, they won't have uh, a sector that would actually uh, purpose or repurpose some of the things happening out in the fields as quickly and swiftly as possible. We're seeing it with potatoes. We saw it with hogs. We saw it with cattle. We saw it with, 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 with mushrooms in Ontario. We're seeing it everywhere. Processing has been undermined in Canada for years. We've lost, going into COVID, we were losing 12 jobs a day, every day, in food processing, food manufacturing, since 2012. Wow. So. So the sector itself went into a crisis in crisis. That's why the, pro, the protein industry cluster, super cluster, uh, run in, out of Regina to support uh, the prairies, to me is a, is a model that really makes sense because uh, 
it really looks at the entire value chain, not just Farmgate. It's not just about let's grow something and figure out a market for it. Every project that has been going out, coming out of PIC actually has a value chain approach, which is really necessary. Manitoba with its protein strategy. When you read the strategy itself, it's all about the value chain, R&D and innovation. Perfect. So we're starting to see little wins here and there. That needs to continue. I'm hoping that COVID really hasn't stopped uh, PIC in its, uh, on its path or Manitoba or other provinces that have, doing, that have been doing quite well. Uh, when, I was leave, when I was living in Saskatchewan, uh, there was this misunderstanding of what a value chain was, but I'm starting to see good decisions being made. Uh, to be honest, and all the investments coming out of uh, coming into Winnipeg, like Nestle and uh, and also Rocket and and Merit Foods. I mean, those are signs. As soon as you start seeing money coming into a market, it means you're doing something good. So now I want to ask you what you think the government's role ought to be in promoting the regulatory system itself and the safety of the products that those regulations oversee. Yeah, so I, I would say, first of all, for a strategy, for a national strategy, you need to make processing the centerpiece of that strategy, first and foremost. Secondly, of course, when it comes to standards, uh, you want to make sure that the Grain Commission, I'm not overly familiar what's been happening there uh, in the last little while, but I would say that uh, you, you need to make sure that standards are upheld as much as possible. Because uh, when, when you deal with, uh, with situations like, um, well, China, that's the big elephant in the room. I mean, that it, is being, it is impacting uh, our economy right now. It has continued to do so. And you want, you want answers. You want to provide answers as much as possible through sound traceability and things like that. But uh, I would say that Canada has a pretty good reputation overall. Uh, we've, we, we have the pleasure right now to be working with ICED Canada on a food innovation index. So we're actually looking at how Canada is innovating in processing compared to other countries around the world. Now, Canada is a lagger in many uh, departments, but it is actually doing very well in food safety. And not only at retail or in distribution, but also at farm gate as well. And, and Canada has a very good reputation too. Uh, we've been actually evaluating Canada's performance compared to other countries for, oh, our first report was back in 2007. And uh, it, Canada has always performed quite well. So at least there's that. And we should actually promote it and we should actually brag about it. Thank you. Shifting gears a little, Recently, you provided some interesting analysis of government support extended to farmers on a per capita basis in other countries. You highlighted that the U.S. government subsidizes or provides subsidies directly to farmers that amounts to about $86 per capita. And in the EU, it's about $90 per capita. Here in Canada, by comparison, these subsidies amount to $6 per person. Yeah. How do these differing levels, in your view, um, how do those differing levels of support affect Canadian farmers and more broadly the international agri-markets in which we compete? This is, uh, 
I, I just provided that metric to, you know, of course, uh, get people to talk about it uh, in terms of how we support our farmers. Obviously, we didn't talk about supply management and supply management is a, is a separate debate, I guess, because it is a very highly protective regime. But when you look at uh, our commitment to agriculture, uh, it's nowhere near where the Americans are or where Europe is right now. Uh, for, for example, I mean, when you look at the amount provided by Canadians or when you look at our food policy, which was presented in June of 2019 by Ottawa, um, I believe the budget was a, set at about $134 million over five years when the farm bill is over a trillion dollars. So you can see that really the, and the farm bill provides, and that's the most important part, an actual vision, a common vision for agriculture. Whereas in Canada, we're still somewhat waiting for that. And so the food policy provided, I think everyone with some sort of vision, but with $134 million, it's hard to commit to that. Mm -hmm. And so up next, of course, is a strategy that we all need. Uh, I'm, in order for that strategy to, to be worthwhile, we would need a strategy to be supported by a, at least a 3 to $5 billion envelope each year. That would be a minimum, just to at least have a conversation around a common vision. And we will need to make some tough decisions down the road. Don't 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 uh, don't get me wrong. I think we can't we can't really support everything and everyone. But I think I think as Canadians or as a country, because of all the resources we have and because of a very small population we have in the largest countries country in the world, we need to think strategically about broader markets, about markets beyond Canada. This rhetoric around self-sufficiency and, and buying local, uh, it's great. I mean, it's great to buy local, but I think Canada should really think about feeding Canadians and while feeding the rest of the world at the same time. And that's how you're going to keep prices lower for Canadians and you're going to generate more wealth for our economy. So let's, let's unpack that a little, if you don't mind. You know, we've seen a bit of a movement growing of late to buy Canadian and buy local. Are there any drawbacks to this push to buy local? And, and what does it mean, to your point, what does it mean for an export-oriented sector like our members? It's, yeah, it's, um, it's hard to argue against motherhood and apple pie. I mean, it's just buying local, and that's why pro politicians and, and industry leaders are encouraging Canadians to buy local, and that's fine even though local will mean something different to, to everyone. I mean, if you're in Nova Scotia, uh, I would argue that if it's Canadian, it's local. If you go to Quebec, it has to be not only from Quebec, but from your own region. It gets complicated. But I think it's okay to encourage people to buy local. And, and throughout COVID, we've seen some provinces uh, start new programs, actually, to encourage people to buy local. But we have to remind ourselves that most of the wealth we have in Canada is due to exports. We're, we're, good export, we're a good export country. 
and we export good products, even though I think we should think about more value-added products <laughs> way more than what we do now. But I actually do think that there, we have a lot to offer, even more so than now. And frankly, and, and I'm going back to my processing soapbox, um, right now we, we do buy quite uh, a few products that actually have Canadian greens in them. And because uh, we don't think about innovation. Beyond Meat, Beyond Meat should have been Canadian. I mean, when you actually think about what Canada can do, all of the wealth created by Beyond Meat should have been in Canada with all the inputs we have, every, the know-how we have, but we just didn't look at that opportunity, unfortunately. Or we came, came in too late. And right now, I'm, I'm actually mentoring three startups doing, that are doing the same thing as Beyond Meat 11 years later. In the wake of the pandemic, we've seen a couple of campaigns emerge to inform consumers how the food supply chain in this country functions. The Canadian Centre for Food Integrity introduced their campaign, It's Good Canada, and it's intended to share personal stories of Canadians working across the food supply chain and provide information about farming and transportation, processing, retail and production. The Growing Strong campaign is meant to ask stakeholders, could we have done better? And is being run by the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute and the University of Guelph's Errol Food Institute. What are your thoughts on these campaigns and what more in your view do we need to be doing to make our supply chains more resilient? Uh, well, uh, it's a good question. We've actually been doing a lot of studies on, on COVID uh, at, at the lab in, in Nova Scotia. Um, it's, it's hard. So obviously there's, there's still, and I'm actually personally working uh, with uh, three different task force uh, on COVID right now, and that, and we meet every week, um, and so I have a sense of what's been happening. There are still some issues out there for sure. Uh, they are getting less uh, attention, uh, but there's still some some issues out there. I actually do think that the the one thing that needs to be recognized uh, as a result of COVID again. Is 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 our understanding of 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 supply chain management in particular, uh, from farm to to fork? Um, a lot of people just don't understand uh, how how it works. I, I remember thirteen weeks ago when people were just panicking, and I said, uh, and you can go back thirteen weeks ago and listen to some of my interviews. I absolutely was never concerned about about uh, food shortages at all uh, and I'm frankly I actually felt that it was important for a lot of Canadians to go through that process of panic because they just needed to to do something to uh, feel in control and so I, I think we went through a phase that was unprecedented and uh, it was hard to explain could we could we have done things differently maybe my my sense, I mean, if, if you look at the economics of, of the entire supply chain, my hope would be to actually get people to earn more money <laughs> from the grocery clerks up to the farmer. We need that chain needs more money. 
And, and, and because of what consumers want, which is affordable foods, everything else has to be uh, exposed to tre tremendous pressures, lots of competition, and there's nothing wrong about competition. But this hero pay debate, and a lot of grocers are ending uh, hero pay programs right now, uh, people are earning $13, $14 an hour, working 8, 10, 12 hours a day, uh, exposed to this virus. And that, that is not what's, what farmers are doing. Farmers have been uh, physically distancing for centuries, <laughs> really. But when you think of grocery stores and how much they earn, and, and there is they're exposed to, I, I think it was celebrated at the beginning, 12 weeks ago, but I never heard a consumer say, this is great. It's a great decision to pay people more. And we're willing to pay for that. That last part, I didn't hear at all, ever. And I'm not hearing people saying, I love farmers and I'm willing to pay for what they do. The love farmers part, I hear it all the time. I want to pay for what farmers are doing. I never hear it. That needs to change. Absolutely. And because of our high inflation rate uh, right now, uh, perhaps the average Canadian household will spend, instead of spending 9% of its budget, which is actually one of the lowest percentages in the world, uh, right next to the United States and Singapore, uh, we could see that 9% go up to 10, 11, 12%. And is that a bad thing? I don't know. I actually do think it could be a good thing for consumers and for the entire supply chain because that rapport will change. I will value food. Therefore, I recognize the work that people are doing within the food supply chain. I think that has been broken for years. I'm just hoping that COVID could bring people back to that conversation. Okay, let's talk about that conversation and that rapport. I want to go back maybe before we bring this conversation to a close and talk a little bit about that term that you used, social contract with food. What, if any, impact do you think that this pandemic is going to have on the conversation around food? And, and tell us a little bit about this concept this, this, that you've raised, social contract with food. What does that mean? Well, that's kind of what I was talking about, uh, paying more, uh, recognizing that market currency for that yogurt, that loaf of bread, whatever you're buying, essentially. So how um, do we get consumers there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think the macroeconomic context is there. Uh, prices are going to go up regardless. But there are there is going to be some bargain hunting for sure. But at the end of the day, because of, of this acute awareness now of what supply chain chains are doing, because consumers were asking about empty shelves. They were asking about where their food was coming from. They were asking about logistics. And I was actually answering questions I've never actually felt I had to answer, <laughs> really, it, it, over the last 12. I felt like a therapist for a while. <laughs> just, just, just because people needed to understand why are they empty shelves? I mean, my God, are we running a, a run out of food? No, it's in-store merchandising. And then you work your way through. Because that appreciation, I'm just hoping, will stay. And if it stays, 
then I think people will recognize the work being done uh, in the food supply chain. And over time, and I'm talking about collusion here, but I'm talking about, well, charging more. You want to pay for this? This is, you're going to have to pay for this. Uh, we're doing some research on, on packaging, plastics. Before COVID, enemy number one. COVID came along, nobody talks about plastics anymore. But it's going to come back. And guess what? If you want a compostable uh, package, you're going to have to pay for it. If you want to save the planet, don't expect farmers or processors or anybody else to pay for that. At the end of the day, consumers should have this renewed social contract with the food industry in order to recognize some of the things that need to change. Because right now, I personally think, and, and consumers don't see it, but they actually put the entire food industry, including farmers, uh, in an unfair position uh, of reinvesting without getting an ROI back. There's no ROI. It's just about cost. And maybe finally, it's often said that this pandemic is going to shape our future. In what ways do you think it is going to influence food or agriculture policy? Um, it is... I'm not, I'm not sure if it's going, I, I'm still skeptic. I, I'm still a skeptic. I, I, I'm hoping it will change, uh, but I'm just not sure. It depends how we embrace uh, this, this crisis that we're going through right now. Uh, the, it, it, was, it, it is a global pandemic. Everyone's lives have been affected by, by this. Um, but we're humans and we, we tend to forget, <laughs> unfortunately. Just an example, I mean, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of discussion around processing uh, when we saw the problem with High River and, mm -hmm. and uh, also with, uh, with Brooks, both plants I visited myself years ago. Well, guess what happened 17 years prior to COVID, BSE, and we were talking about the same things and barely anything changed. We saw perhaps two abattoirs starts as a result one closed in indian head saskatchewan natural valley farms we don't we don't learn from our mistakes we don't necessarily embrace opportunities but perhaps covid was big enough large enough and long enough to actually have this impact that we all need in order to change the way we spend on food the way that industry provides us with food uh, i do hope there'll be There'll be more innovation, more appetite, no pun, for innovation in, in Canada. Because right now, it's, it's really missing. Well, thank you very much for this conversation today, Sylvain. I think it was very timely. I appreciate your insights. At the top of the show, I was, I was saying as part of my introductory remarks, you know, because of our inability right now to bring our farmer members from across the country to the nation's capital, you know, this podcast we felt was kind of a creative way to keep the lines of communication open between our farmer members, policymakers, and industry influencers like yourself. I wanted to, to give your new show a bit of a plug. You started a podcast yourself, and I think you're yes. only about three or four episodes in now to your own podcast, and I wanted to know a bit about what inspired you to start doing that and, and, and to give our, our listeners a, a sense of what some of the issues you're talking about on your podcast. It's a good question. I, I, I do give uh, uh, 
maybe 30, 40 media interviews a week. Uh, in fact, with COVID, it was up to 60, 70 a week uh, at the beginning. It was just uh, crazy. So, and I write op-eds every single week for different dailies, uh, both in French and English. Uh, I've been doing that for about 20 years, uh, reached an audience in doing so. But I felt with a podcast, you reach a different audience or maybe the same people at a different level. Uh perhaps on their own time, which is actually kind of a bit of a luxury. I mean, you can basically listen to some of the comments I make or Michael, my co-host, uh, he's actually quite knowledgeable as well. We're going ha to have guests as well, people in industry, farmers. Uh, we'll have, uh, in a few weeks, we'll actually have a farmer joining us uh, to basically look at uh, broad issues uh, and, and and the podcast, which is called The Food Professor, is, is really about food in general, from farm gate to play, but it's also about the future of food. Where are we going? And everyone has a say, from farmers to, to processors to distributors, and, and they'll have a different perspective, which is great. We need different perspectives. And, uh, but we also need a conversation about uh, what we need to do here. And so that was my, that was the intent of our podcast. Forum for deeper, richer conversations. I like that. Absolutely. And, uh, and I want to thank you too. I know you're going to stick around. We'll conclude this, uh, this conversation and you have been uh, very generous with your time today to stick around and, and do this again with me in French. So for our, for our Quebec Looking members. forward to hear you in French. <laughs> I, I'm not. But thank you very much for agreeing to do that with us. So we'll, we'll have this conversation again, again in French. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the fifth episode of Fireside Chats with Aaron. We will be back in two weeks' time with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date on all things GGC, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's Grain Growers. Until then.